Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to One Question with Pastor Adam. And hey, I'm Adam, and I am pastor to believers and to doubters, to unfaithful Christians and to faithful atheists. And uh, friends, Jesus was not afraid of questions, and so neither are we here at One Question with Pastor Adam. And so, hey, Luke, what up, my man? And so uh, each uh, Thursday, well, mostly each Thursday, whenever it works out, uh, we're going to be on the show and uh, talk about questions that you might have about Christianity, about life, about what what are we doing here in the first place? What are we doing, Luke? I have no idea. <laughs> we're here to cause some good trouble, cause some good trouble like uh, John Lewis. So do you read that book by uh, John Meacham about John Lewis? So so good. I've got it down in my bookshelf. Um, which one is it? His Truth is Marching On. I think that's it about John Lewis. Fantastic book. Highly recommend it. I'm the least faithful of Jesus likers. I don't see myself as technically Christian. Luke, Luke, I love it. I What What do you see yourself as, uh, as Luke? Anything? Like, uh, I don't know. It's all good. Like, you don't have to pick. It's all good. We're just all trying to get through this world together. <laughs> so here we are, uh, friends. Um, here we are. Uh, one question with Pastor Adam is a product of the Raven Foundation. Uh, highly uh, love, love working for the Raven Foundation. Fantastic stuff. So uh, go check out ravenfoundation.org. Today we are going to be, oh, oh, Luke, neo-pagan is probably a good term for me. I love it. I love it. We should do a one question about neo-paganism in the near future. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so uh, today we're going to talk about Christian nationalism. I've got some notes today. Uh, usually I don't do notes, but I'm working on an extended article on Christian nationalism. So wanted to give you a taste of this article that I'm writing today. Christian nationalism continues to be on the rise. I just uh, saw a news story today about uh, governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, doing some Christian nationalist stuff, um, threatening schools uh, if they have um, uh, books and do some teaching that he thinks are, um, you know, uh, actual history <laughs> about racism in the United States. Uh, and so uh, he calls it critical race theory. Nobody's doing critical race theory in in elementary school or high schools. Uh, that's college level stuff. But, you know, it's the it's the big scary word for uh, many Christian nationalists. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before we do, I want to uh, I want to talk with you about last week's episode and next week's episode, because I'm excited about these things. Last week, we talked about how to hold on to your joy. And uh, sometimes I like to do silly things when I try to hold on to my joy. Maybe you like to do silly things too, to hold on to your joy. And sometimes we get criticized. Well, I got criticized for uh, uh, for being progressive Christian, who I am. <laughs> and uh, somebody called me a heretic and uh, blasphemy and all these things. And uh, the, the word when they typed out uh, did autocorrect or voice to speech did blast blast teachings instead of blasphemy. And uh, so on Monday, I wanted to hold on to my joy. And I did a, uh, they also accused me of being Luciferian, which is awesome, I guess. So they accused me of 
uh, being Luciferian and doing blast fitness. So I put the two together. We had a Luciferian blast fitness class on Monday and I was, it was just so much fun. I, it was so joyful and people came at and people came after me. Uh, one person saw me in my Lucifer Satan costume. Here you go. Here it is. So fun, right? Right. I'm like dancing to this in this costume. I'm uh, working out in this costume and somebody came after me and said, uh, uh, makes sense for you to be dressed up as Satan. Ha ha ha. Cause you're so Satanish. And I'm like, dude, get a life, get a life. Right. Uh, and, uh, I realized that one of the keys to holding on to joy is to, is to know your audience. And that might sound weird to you. Uh, know who it is you want to be engaged with. Like the trolls who come on social media or the trolls who come on into your life. Uh, yeah, this is the old, the old saying, don't feed the trolls. So I started engaging with this person a little bit and it just was like, it was just this hostility back and forth. And I was like, I'm done. You're not, you're, I'm not here for this. Like, uh, part of holding on to joy is to not let the negativity wear us down. And that's what I experienced with uh, a lot of the trolls. And so people often are like, how do you deal with the negativity and the trolls? Sometimes you just move on. Sometimes you just got to be like, you know, I'm not here for them. I'm here for, I'm here for you, right? I mean, we are here, we're here for Luke. We're here for Melanie. We're here for Dallas. Uh, we are here for Lita. Hello, everybody. We're here together. Uh, this is what we're about. Uh, we're, you know, so sometimes like in life, people will just drag us down. Do you know what I mean? Do you hear me on this? And what do you, you can either like feed into that or you can just move on. Uh, so sometimes I, for me to hold on to my joy, I just have to move on, right? Like they're going to be haters and you just let them hate. And sometimes ignoring them is the best. I ended up blocking this person because they were just relentless. Sometimes you got to block them out of your lives. Uh, social media, that might be easier to do. I don't know. Uh, but sometimes you just, just got to move on. Can I get an amen in the chat section? Let's go, people. So that was last week. And I just had this experience that I wanted to talk with you about. Next week, uh, I'm excited for this one. I, as I said last week, I firmly believe that many Christians seed a lot of our, uh, many progressive Christians seed a lot of our history, Christian history and tradition to conservative Christians. And we just let them name the game, right? I don't want to do that anymore. And one of the key areas that I don't want to do this anymore is with the apostle Paul, because Paul was far more progressive than what many conservative Christians want to, uh, want uh, want to allow. Uh, and so they have owned Paul for a couple of generations. And actually in the academy, in seminaries, there's a lot of work done on Paul that shows that he was actually far more progressive uh, during his time than uh, many, many people were. Uh, and so I did this Google search for Paul the Progressive. And wouldn't you know, uh, here it is, the book, uh, Paul the Progressive, by uh, Dr. Eric C. Smith. Read the book, loved it, highly recommend it if you are interested in uh, work on Paul and reframing Paul. 
re-understanding Paul, unlearning things about Paul that we have learned. We're going to talk about misogynism. We're going to talk about um, homophobia. We're going to talk about uh, other ways that Paul has been misused uh, to be oppressive against uh, certain folks. And uh, that is a misuse of Paul. And I'm going to talk with Eric Smith about it. And I can't wait next week. So if you have comments or questions for that or for this episode, I hope that you can put that in the chat section and uh, we'll bring it in. So for, uh, here we go. A glorious morning to you, uh, princess. Good to see you. Uh, Critics are important sometimes. Yes, unless they're stupid criticisms, which... (laughs) I guess can be subjective. Yeah, that's, that's good, Luke. Yeah. Sometimes the, sometimes the critics might have a point. Uh, not in my case though. None of my critics have a point, Luke. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That was a joke. That was a joke. It's okay to laugh. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, okay. Tree. Yeah. Uh, help me, uh, mark that down too, tree. (laughs) Part of the negativity, part of holding on to your joy is not letting the negativity wear us down. Uh, Okay. I said that. Yeah. Okay. Just kind of came out. So today I want to talk with you about Christian nationalism. This is a term that uh, has been in the news lately. Uh, It's been around actually from the beginning of uh, U.S. history, even before U.S. history, unfortunately. And I want to talk with you about it in its uh, forms that are modern and also ancient. Uh, And first, I want to define Christian nationalism by uh, a Christian nationalist as they define the term, Uh, because I read a book. You don't have to read it. Please don't read it. (laughs) It was an Amazon bestseller for a while. It is called Christian Nationalism, a biblical guide to taking dominion and discipling nations. And here, like, that's all you need to know about Christian nationalism from a Christian nationalist point of view uh, is the title of that book. It's by Andrew Torba and Andrew Eisker. And uh, Taking Dominion is what this movement is all about. Uh, You may know that uh, the Nazi party was a nationalist movement based on power and trying to take dominion uh, by scapegoating certain folk. Uh, tragically, our Jewish siblings suffered the most from that form of nationalism. But that's what nationalism is about. Uh, it is about scapegoating, uh, point putting all of our problems onto minority groups so that we can feel big and powerful about ourselves. And just like in Nazi Germany, uh, Nazi Germany used Christian theology in order to sustain itself and to gain more and more power and credibility. Uh, tragically, uh, national Christian nationalism in the United States has done the same thing. Uh, in Nazi Germany, you would think or you would have hoped that pastors and uh, seminary professors and theologians would have been able to have seen through Hitler and the nationalism that Nazism brought forth. But tragically, uh, and to the shame of Christianity and to Christians, it was primarily Christians who got on board with Hitler's movement. Some of them were indifferent, Many of them, including uh, many 
theologians and authors, uh, seminary professors who wrote books that are actually unfortunately still read today. Paul Althaus is, uh, is still read today. He was one of the main theologians and seminary, seminary professors who wrote a lot of books, was very influential uh, pre-Nazi Germany, uh, and many of his books unfortunately continue to be read today. There are far, far better books <laughs> to read uh, than uh, his. But... This is to say that Christianity has been in bed with nationalism, scapegoating movements of minority groups for a long, long time, including here in uh, this land uh, that has been uh, occupied uh, here in the United States uh, by white folk. Uh, and I, I use that language occupied for a, a certain reason, because this nationalism, uh, Christian nationalism, uh, is part of the founding here in the United States. When we talk about Christian nationalism, we can't just go back to the 1980s, 1950s. We have to go back all the way to uh, before even Columbus came. And we're going to get there in a minute. But here's here's how uh, Iber, uh, Torba and Eisker define Christian nationalism in their book. They say this, Christian nationalism is a spiritual, political, and cultural movement based on, based, comprised of Christians who are working to build a Christian society grounded in a biblical worldview. This book is a guide for Christians to take dominion and disciple their families, churches, and all nations for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. And doesn't that sound very Christian? Doesn't that sound like, oh, yes, we should do that? No, this is scary. This is scary, scary language because, because of this. Uh, they want uh, a Christian society grounded in biblical worldview. Well, what biblical worldview are you talking about? Are you talking about in Deuteronomy where it says that you are to stone your stubborn and rebellious son by taking him to the center of the city and uniting the community together and killing your stubborn and rebellious son? That's part of the biblical worldview, people. Like, we can talk about uh, how this movement, Christian nationalism, is primarily against our LGBTQI2 plus siblings, uh, like Christian nationalism was in Nazi Germany. But if you're talking about a biblical worldview, are you wanting to stone stubborn and rebellious sons? Because that is a biblical worldview. Are you wanting to forgive debt, economic debt, uh, once every seven years? Because that's a biblical worldview too. That will destroy capitalism, by the way. Uh, that's a biblical worldview. They're not talking about that. They're not talking about that. Uh, are they, are they wanting to pick and choose biblical verses that justify their desire for, uh, greed and power? That's what they're going to do. That's the biblical worldview that they are talking about. Uh, when they say that this book is a guide for Christians to take dominion and disciple their families, churches, and all nations for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Do you know what word Jesus never used? Dominion. Never said, hey guys, we're going to go out 
and uh, take dominion over all of the nations. Never said we're going to go out and we're going to take power, political power against all of the nations and make people conform to our biblical worldview. <laughs> in fact, in fact, when Jesus was tempted to do that very thing, when he was out in the desert at the beginning of his ministry, and Satan comes to him and says, uh, look, I will show you all of the nations of the world. They have all been given over to me. Satan has dominion over the worlds, and Satan could give all of that power over to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He resists. He says, that is not the kind of power that I came here for. If Jesus came here for any kind of power, it is the power not to have dominion over others. It is the power to serve others. You know how Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Christian nationalism wants to be first and make sure that it continues to be first. <laughs> going against the very words of Jesus. You know what uh, passages uh, that these two authors, uh, Torba and Eisker, do not quote in their book on Christian nationalism? They never quote Jesus saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve. They do not quote Jesus saying the explicit words that if you are to follow him, you are not to lord it over others, because that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the non-followers of Jesus at that time do. They take their power and they lord it over others. So Jesus says, I... I if you are going to follow me, you are not going to lord it over others because I came to serve, not to be served. That is the whole project of Christianity. That is the whole project that Jesus came and invites us into. Not dominion over and against others. If you are going to talk about power as a Christian, it must be the power to love. To love the other as the other. Not to enforce the other to be exactly like us so that we can love the other. That's not what this is about. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that's that's my little intro uh, to Christian nationalism and how it's just off from the start, how it just misses the point right from the beginning. And it has missed the point right from the beginning of uh, history in the United States. Uh, before Columbus came to the United States, uh, the Pope at the time, Pope Nicholas V, stated in a uh, papal bull called Dum Divertis, which is translated as until uh, different. Uh, the Pope at the time said this, we grant you explorers, people who are going out and exploring new lands. Uh, we grant you these present documents with our apostolic authority, full and free permission to invade. Oh, my heart breaks as I, as I read this from Christian history. This is Wow, 
Okay. Full and free permission to invade, search out, capture, and subjugate the Saracens. This is uh, language at the time for Muslims. Uh, the Saracens and pagans and any other unbelievers and enemies of Christ, wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property and to reduce their persons into perpetual servitude. The Catholic Church, thank God, I, I'm I'm 95% sure has repudiated that document. No, I, no, the Catholic Church has repudiated that document. It is so horrific and so tragic uh, from within Christian history. And, you know, as a Protestant, can't blame Catholics uh, for this solely because— uh, we're involved in this too. This is a power grab. This is Christian nationalism as we are entering into uh, uh, lands that uh, have always been occupied, but now we are going to occupy them and justify it in the name of Christ uh, and call these people enemies of Christ. Good Lord, people. This is this is what Christian nationalism is all about. Seeing the other as enemy. Seeing the other as someone to be converted or someone to be defeated, someone to be conquered. Right here from before uh, Christopher Columbus. This is the spirit that Christianity moves into. It's an invader spirit and can you imagine Jesus saying these words to his disciples. I hope that you cannot. I hope that when you hear these words that uh, your heart breaks because this is so anti-Christ. When we, when we talk about anti-Christ language, it's just, come on, it's just, you know what this is. It, it's language, it's an ideology that goes against the way of Christ. And that's what Christian nationalism is at its very core. In these brief quotes that I've given you from uh, this book, Christian Nationalism, <laughs> it's all about dominion, taking power. Jesus was not about that. This papal bull that's all about uh, going out and taking persons into perpetual servitude, the enemies of Christ, subjugating them. Oh, it just, it just, has nothing to do with the Christ who calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When Jesus says that, also another uh, passage that is never quoted by this book on Christian nationalism, is when Jesus says that the most important commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You may know that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that, and then he tells a story about what he means, and that story is often called um, the, the parable of the good Samaritan, the Samaritan and the Jews at the time, uh, were often in conflict with each other. Uh, they had something like a similar religion, but they were also very, uh, they were also different in their understanding of God and their similarities, uh, led them to, led them to, uh, uh, have more hostile conflicts uh, with one another. Uh, it, it would be kind of like the difference between Jews, Christians, and Muslims today. 
Uh, and, you know, sometimes they got along, some got along really well and some didn't, but there were, um, there were hostilities, there were, uh, uh, presumptions, uh, there were, you know, you kind of get it, but you really don't get it <laughs> kind of deal. And so what does Jesus do when he tells this story about how to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself in the gospel of Luke, Jesus points out that it is this person who is religiously other who gets it. It would be like a Jesus telling coming today and telling a story and saying, "Hey, there's a uh, there's there's a Christian nationalist, uh, there's a uh, maybe a progressive Christian, and neither of you get it. <laughs> it's the Muslim who gets it. It's the Muslim who goes and takes care of the wounded person on the side of the street, the homeless person who's struggling, and you're all ignoring this person walking on the other side of the road. And who is the good guy in this story? It's the one that you would least expect. Jesus tells these stories in order to shake us up. Uh, in order to get us off of our high horse, that we are the uh, the ones Christians here. We are the ones who are chosen by God in order to be this great light to the nations. Well, sometimes you really F it up, don't you? Sometimes you really mess it up. <laughs> and open your eyes to seeing that the Samaritan gets it. Open your eyes to seeing that the Muslim, the atheist, the Hindu, they're getting it. Christian nationalism doesn't believe in the story of the Good Samaritan. Doesn't believe that God is working through those that we label as other because they're unholy, because they're not like us. It is this distinction that Christian nationalism makes uh, between us and them or us against them that is anti gospel, that is hostile to the way of Jesus. Uh, one of the letters in the New Testament, one of the early Christian uh, writers puts it, says that uh, Christ came to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, and what does Christian nationalism do? It resurrects the dividing wall of hostility. And we are here to continue to break it down. We are here to continue to uh, point to a better world. That's what we have to do. And uh, Christian nationalism, as you know, continues to be on the rise with politicians today. Uh, they're easy to point out. They're easy to find. Uh, we saw it when Donald Trump, when he first ran for president, was like, Oh, Mexico doesn't send their best. They're sending uh, rapists and drug dealers and murderers. Some of them might be good people, but this is a way that Christian nationalism uses in order to scapegoat minority groups, in order to unite over and against others. This is what is um, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says that he came, that quotes uh, the prophet Hosea to many of his opponents, and he says that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Christian nationalists do not uh, 
do not quote that verse. Why? Because they want sacrifice. They want a God of sacrifice. They want a God that they can control in order to channel uh, their hostilities, their disappointments, their, their anger against a minority group and sacrifice them. That it is an ancient, ancient game that humans have been playing for a long, long time. And it is old. And many of us, I hope that when you are hearing this, that you are, you are onto that game. I know that you are onto that game. I know that you see that game. And uh, sometimes I play in that game and I'm like, oh no, I did it again. Uh, here we are, right? Um, and so the trick is to not get caught up into that game when we are talking about uh, minority groups and also when we are talking, when I am talking about Christian nationalists, right? I mean, you we can start scapegoating the scapegoaters. And what I mean by that is primarily this, that our, uh, our siblings, I, I mean that literally, cousins, parents who identify as Christian nationalists, they are not the problem. The, the problem is not the people. The problem is the problem. The problem is an ideology of Christian nationalism that just wants power, that goes away from the teachings of Christ uh, to serve and just wants the teachings uh, of power, of dominion, of taking power over and against others. Uh, that is the problem. And so when, when we're talking about, when I'm talking about this, I try to be very careful, even though uh, individuals give us a really good example of how Christian nationalism, the ideology works, uh, and it's important to talk about those, these individuals are not primarily the problem. Uh, the problem is the spirit of hostility. The problem is this scapegoating mentality, the sacrificial mentality, uh, because it goes against the way of Jesus. And this sacrificial mentality has been with us uh, from the beginning of human history. It's been in the United States. We've sacrificed our indigenous siblings, as I've shown in that papal bull. We've sacrificed our black siblings. We've sacrificed our poor siblings. Uh, and Jesus says that God has nothing to do with sacrifice. God does not desire sacrifice. God desires mercy. You will not find the word mercy in this Amazon bestseller, Christian Nationalism, a Biblical Guide to Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations. <laughs> you won't, you, the word, mer they never use the word mercy in there, even though Jesus says that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Why? Because Christian nationalism as an ideology is all about sacrifice. It's also all about wanting to be the victim in order to take that victim identity, that persecuted identity, and uh, use it in order to gain power over others, to threaten others. We see this with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said a couple of months ago that Democrats are out to kill Republicans. She used, uh, she referred to two stories. I think they were both in uh, North Dakota. Uh, one was a story that she claimed a Democrat was uh, uh, killed a elderly woman who was uh, pro-life. And once you look into the story, 
it's a horrible story. But once you look into it, uh, this elderly woman was on this man's property, whether he was a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but Marjorie Taylor Greene should have loved the story because this woman wouldn't get off this man's property. And so he used his second amendment, right. And killed the woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You are a second amendment, uh, lover. Uh, and this is exactly what the second amendment is for. It's awful. It's horrible. It should be criticized. Uh, but as a second amendment issue, not as a Democrat, uh, killing a Republican, they, they'll twist these stories in order to make themselves out to be the victim, uh, so that they can wield that victimary power, uh, against others and tell these stupid, insane stories that now Democrats are all out to try to kill Republicans. So we have to get the Democrats before they get us. This is how it starts. This is how the violence, the violent rhetoric of Christian nationalism starts. Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to be a Christian nation. And if she meant by that, that we should be a nation that loves our neighbors as we love ourselves, ensure that people have free health care like Jesus did, ensure that people have enough food to eat like Jesus did through his miracles, I would say, glory be to God, let's be a Christian nation, but that's not what they mean. If by Christian nation they meant, yeah, we'll invite everybody in, we'll include everybody as they are, we'll love our neighbors as we love ourselves, including the Samaritans, including the Muslims, including our Jewish siblings, including the atheists, and we will just create a society where everybody is cared for and loved and nobody is homeless. I am on board. Sign me up. But Christian nationalism is not Christian. It's just a power grab. It is just a power grab. They, Christian nationalism wants to use to, to point that Jesus is king. Jesus is a king unlike any other, a king that doesn't seek dominion over others, but transforms our understanding of kingship, our understanding of God as king, if Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus transforms our understanding of kingship so that it is based not on having power or lording things over others, but on serving others. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll end with this and then I'll, I'll see if we've got any questions. Uh, Christian nationalism likes to use the end of the gospel of Matthew. This is a key point for, uh, Torba and Eisker's book, uh, where Jesus says to his disciples after he has been resurrected, uh, the story goes like this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. Christian nationalism 
loves this passage because they love to misuse it as a justification for having dominion and going out and making disciples uh, over others and forcing them to be disciples of Jesus, forcing them to be Christians. So this is for them is their key justification uh, for taking dominion. But there are a few things that I want you want to invite you to notice about this passage. When the resurrected Jesus comes to them, uh, it, it, it takes the story uh, is very careful to say that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <laughs> right? Some doubt. Why does it say that some doubted? You doubt the resurrection. You doubt Jesus. You doubt Christianity. Uh, you have serious doubts. You don't even believe. How does Jesus respond? Uh, not by coming to you and saying, you better turn or burn. Not by saying, how dare you not have faith in me? What does Jesus do? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that to these disciples. He doesn't do that to any of us. He says, hey, guess what? I still have a mission for you. You want to do the mission? What is that mission? To, uh, to all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. What is the authority on heaven and earth that Jesus has been showing us? It is not the dominion to be over and against others, to force others to do our will. What is the authority in heaven and earth that has been given to Jesus to provide free health care to people, to make sure that people are fed, to care for bodies and souls, even bodies and souls that you might disagree with? bodies and souls that the religious conservatives at the time believed didn't deserve to be cared for. They called them sinners. How dare you, Jesus, sit and eat with sinners? People, a man born blind from the beginning, and the assumption is that he sinned or that his parents sinned in order for him to be born blind. And guess what Jesus says? He doesn't play that game. He just says, let's heal you. Let's bring you back into a community of love. See, it's it's Jesus' opponents who are constantly pointing fingers of accusations against others, claiming that they're sinners or that they don't believe enough, that they're not worthy of love, uh, that they should be marked as other. And what does Jesus always do? He always provides this kind of miracle of love and compassion, of healing. And when this passage in Matthew chapter 28 says, go out and make disciples of nations, how did Jesus make disciples of nations? Somebody give me an amen in the chat section. Jesus made disciples by loving people, by showing them, by showing the world that God is not here to condemn people, but to love people. That God did not come to condemn the world, but to love the world. And how does what does that look like? People see Jesus early in his ministry, and he is the all of the gospels say that people would bring the sick to Jesus and he would cure them. And that is how Jesus got disciples. Not by forcing people to believe what he believes, but by living out what he called the kingdom or the realm of God here on earth, which was not about taking power over and against others. Again, he resists that when Satan tempts him with that power. What does he do instead? 
He heals people. Beginning of ministry to the end. He shows us what God truly is like. A God who is not about taking dominion, but a God of of power, yes, but the power to heal and the power to love. Jesus says to love even those that you call your enemies. Christian nationalism does not quote that verse. You will not find that verse in uh, Eisker and Torva's book. Oh, goodness. Okay, so uh, let's see uh, if we got any uh, comments or questions. Uh, all right. Uh, okay. Uh, Luke says, I hate that fascism has become equated with the modern definition of conservative. Yeah. Uh, by many measures, I'd be a conservative if we took the actual etymology of the word at face value. But alas, yeah, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I've, I've sometimes joked that um, I'm conservative because I want to conserve air, water, uh, and land, <laughs> right? Um, that's, that's the, that's, I'm on board with that conservative. Uh, Lita says, Paul, the progressive, another great read. Yeah. Uh, would love if you're interested in Paul, the progressive, we're going to talk about it next week with, uh, Eric and, uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, Luke says, I believe Hitler actually worshiped some ancient Euro God of chaos while using Christianity to usher in genocide. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, statements that, uh, Hitler was not a Christian, uh, and he may have been a, worshiping an ancient Euro God. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure, but, but, uh, surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly anymore. Uh, I have an uncle actually, and I've interviewed him in the past. Um, uncle Bob, Bob Erickson, uh, who wrote a book, uh, when he was getting his PhD on, um, Christian history called theologians under Hitler. Uh, and he says in the beginning of that book, fascinating, wonderful book, uh, um, also very sad book, uh, that he had thought when he first started doing this research that it would have been Christians who would have stood up to Hitler. It wasn't. There, there were very few Christians like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We should do a we should do a, a podcast or a class on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church uh, uh, were the Christians who uh, rose up against Hitler. And uh, uh, good for them. They did what Christians should always do. Um, but, uh, and, uh, Bonhoeffer ended up being killed as, uh, he believed in nonviolence and, uh, um, also, uh, nonviolence is not pacifism. And so he worked to, he worked against Hitler, uh, eventually deciding, and this is key to anybody who reads Bonhoeffer's work, uh, he eventually decides that he has to participate in an assassination, an assassination attempt against Hitler. Now, uh, people who don't understand Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like Eric Metaxas, who wrote a book on Bonhoeffer, horrible book. Do not read that book. Uh, and now I know like you're going to go off and you're going to read it. Uh, if you do know, know this because you know, like, don't do this. Uh, we're going to go do it. Um, what, if you do read that book, Metaxas says that Bonhoeffer eventually realizes that there are some times when you can kill people and uh, God is all for it. No, that's not how Bonhoeffer viewed what he was doing. 
Bonhoeffer viewed what he was doing as going against the will of God. But there are times in life when you have to take that responsibility upon yourself and enact this kind of sin in order to stop something far worse from happening. So what Bonhoeffer shows us is that sometimes you have to fall upon the grace of God. And uh, now um, some of us might agree or disagree with Bonhoeffer on this. I personally, that's how I view it, um, is fall into the what you hope or the gracious, loving arms of God as we make these incredibly difficult decisions uh, that we sometimes have to make in life. Um, and uh, that was his attempt to stop Hitler. Uh, he got discovered and um, was eventually killed. So uh, Bonhoeffer uh, believed that Jesus calls us to nonviolence, and he he couldn't be faithful to that cause. And so he had to ask cry out for forgiveness. Uh, all kinds of feelings about that, I know. Um, uh, disagreements about that, it's all fine. It's all good. Uh, it's just part of the difficulty. It's how seriously he took following the nonviolent, radical, loving Jesus who calls us to love even our enemies. So um, uh, Jeff says, Henry Ford was a big fan of Hitler. Yep. Uh, Henry Ford, a uh, anti-Semite. Um, Anti-Semitism has been with us from the beginning. Uh uh, it's always traced back to two things. Luke says money and power and money is the root of all evil. Red letters. There you go. There you go. Uh, because a theological worldview doesn't take into account community. It's probably rooted in money, power, and evil. Yep. Uh, Jesus, you know, one of the Jesus criticized greed uh, more than anything else. And yet Christian nationalism in their book on Christian nationalism, what's the big problem in the world today? Our LGBTQ siblings. Come on. Jesus never mentions anything about homosexuality. He talks about uh, greed almost in every other verse. And Christian nationalism is just another way of, of missing the whole point. Um, Jesus uh, never called himself king. He never called him. That's right, Melanie. He never called himself uh, the king or the Messiah. Um, and uh, I think uh, there are all kinds of different theories about that. Uh, it was in part because uh, uh, he knew that it would get him killed very early. Uh, and also in part, uh, maybe because he was trying to transform our understanding of kingship so that uh, we would understand it through his lens of, um, of service, of uh, self-giving, uh, not of, you know, taking like a, like a king usually would, what do you expect of your Kings? Um, somebody who leads you in an army against your enemies, right? Jesus is not doing that. Um, so whether Jesus, uh, thought of himself as King, <laughs> uh, is a topic for another debate, but you're exactly right, Melanie, uh, in, in saying that. So uh, yeah, MLK Luke, uh, also says MLK was killed two weeks after he joined, uh, black sanitation, uh, workers strike. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Luke says it a little, little differently. MLK was crucified by the state two weeks after he joined, uh, the black sanitation workers strike. Yep. I like the way that you word that Luke. Uh, so a lot of work needs to be done, uh, for that. Nobody is an enemy of Christ in God's view. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you. And that is the 
uh, nail in the coffin for me. Sorry for that violent language. That's the nail in the coffin for me when it comes to Christian nationalism, as Melanie just says there. Um, uh, Yep, the Catholic Church, uh, Luke says, is still uh, covering up a lot of shady arrangements. Um, That is that is true. Uh, so there's a lot of, lot of work to do. Um, let's see. Hi, Shirley. Good to see you. Uh, uh, Melanie says, I struggle with this too, Melanie. I struggle to not think that the people are the problem. I have this, uh, black or white thinking where if someone doesn't think like me cares about others, then they are a bad person. I'm trying really hard to not do this, but all I can do for now is acknowledge it. Uh, Melanie, I'm just very proud of you. I'm just very proud of you for, I don't, I mean, I don't know the ultimate right answer, but I, I just see you struggling, uh, with these big issues. And, uh, I really appreciate that you are struggling with them. Uh, and, thinking it through as thoughtfully as, as you do. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, Jeff with the KKK Christian. (laughs) Come on, Jeff. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, uh, Jeff says to be willing to march into hell in a heavenly cause. You know, I think that this is it, Jeff. I think that, uh, you know, you've, I've got the tattoo on my arm of uh, Jesus breaking down the gates of hell uh, and grabbing Adam, uh, the first man in all of humanity, and dragging him out with him. I think that that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus goes to uh, the places where uh, it's difficult, all the way to Golgotha, uh, to death. Uh, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, you know, I haven't talked about the parables, but if you if you read the parables. They can be, Jesus says that he tells the parables and they're mysterious and they're difficult to people to understand, but he's given you the keys to understanding them. Um, And the keys to understanding them is that Jesus came to, uh, in his teachings, once again, Jesus reiterates this over and over again. He came to serve, not to be served, right? He came to love uh, even those that we call our enemies. So the key to understanding these parables is that when you see somebody who is a violent dominant figure and that person is the king this is what melanie's uh question also is getting at uh when you see that like there's a king in the land and he does some really really bad stuff well a lot of christians say oh that must be jesus (laughs) oh okay no no jesus is the one in the parables who gets thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth Jesus is much more that character than he is any king character who does horrible, objectively horrible, awful things. Why do we know this? Because Jesus is cast out into the outer darkness on Golgotha, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the hell that Jesus that, that Jeff is talking about here to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. That is what Jesus does. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's inviting us to what Jeff is getting at here. Uh, It ain't easy. Uh, And many of us do not have to go in search of hell because we are living it right now. And if that is you, just know that you are not alone. Jesus has been there. Jesus is there with you, uh, and hopefully you've got 
people with you in that hell as well. Hopefully you can you can look up and it might take a while, might take a while. Uh, but hopefully you can you can look up and see that there are other people here uh, with you. Uh, Jessica says, I believe it's challenging for most of us if we're honest with ourselves. All we can do is work towards it as best we can. I think that's in response to uh, Melanie. Yeah, uh, it's I love that. I love that, Jessica. It's a it's a journey. We're all like baby steps, uh, baby steps on on getting there. Um, so, uh, this, uh, thank you all for your comments and, uh, for, for watching and, um, yeah, uh, here we are. Christian nationalism still here. Uh, um, uh, you may have heard the story from the governor of, uh, Florida, uh, who may be running for president, uh, who is uh, Ron DeSantis and trying to get rid of, trying to threaten teachers who uh, teach critical race theory, by which he means racism in the United States, because we don't want our children to feel bad. And by our children, we mean our white children, right? I mean, that's what white, that's white Christian nationalism in in a nutshell. It's fragile. Uh, it uh, it it feels guilty about itself. It doesn't know what to do uh, about itself other than try to take power and dominion over others uh, and go against the way of Jesus. Um, and Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And part of the truth of the United States is our history of racism, uh, is our economic exploitation, uh, is the ways in which we dehumanize one another. And the trick is uh, Melanie and Jessica are uh, getting at is how do we not dehumanize our, those who identify as Christian nationalists? Just give you uh, a few uh, thoughts on that. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've kind of discovered that, that debating these issues, uh, these ideas with uh, <coughs> people, excuse me, who identify as Christian nationalists, it might not be the right place to start. I think talking about fears, uh, <coughs> excuse me, talking about our um, uh, what what we're afraid of, uh, what what are our goals? Um, you know, part of uh, Christian nationalist goal is um, to make to make the country better. Uh, I share that goal um, to help promote Christianity. I share that goal. In many ways, we have common goals. Uh, our methods in order to do that may be very different, but if we can start talking about common goals, common fears, um, a, a lot of this is based on loss, a sense of loss. And I may disagree with that loss, what that loss means, um, because here's another thing that Christian nationalism misses, is that uh, Christian nationalism is bad for all of us. I mean, just even for Christian nationalists, I'll give you just two examples of this. There is no greater Christian nationalist in this country than the vice president, the former vice president, Mike Pence. He is the he has dedicated his life to Christian nationalism and the principles of Christian nationalism. And yet Christian nationalism threatens him with chance of hang Mike Pence. Christian nationalism has a violence to it that cannot be controlled. It will even go after one of the greatest Christian nationalists the country has ever known. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So the the second uh, story about this is that Christian nationalists tend to have economic policies that uh, Christian nationalism has economic policies that hurt Christian nationalists. Uh, you re- you remember that uh, the that uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, was denied in uh, certain red states in the Bible Belt. And what happened? Their hospitals in rural areas uh, got um, destroyed, got ended because uh, they didn't have funding. If you want more on this, read Heather McGee's book, uh, The Sum of Us. It's amazing, amazing book. Um, she says that in, I, I think it was in Kentucky where uh, the governor was like, yes, we actually need uh, the Affordable Care Act. Please bring it. And what happened in Kentucky? Rural hospitals thrived. I may have my states mixed up a bit, but there most of the red states in the Bible Belt rejected the Affordable Care Act and suffered for it. The few states that uh, that wanted it, that accepted it, ended up having hospitals that are doing much, much better. That's how white Christian nationalism hurts everyone. Racism hurts everyone, including white people and Christian nationalists. So we have to do what we can in order to work against the ideology of Christian nationalism because it hurts everybody, including Christian nationalists. So um, my throat is uh, starting to hurt. I've been talking for about an hour. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening through. If you're uh, listening on the podcast, uh, bonus points for you. Bonus points for all of you for uh, lasting an hour on this on this episode. Uh, thank you for being here, everybody. Uh, and uh, I would love to know your thoughts on uh, Christian nationalism. And uh, send me an email or uh, write me a message over Facebook or whatever. Uh, uh, thank you, Melanie. Thank you. And uh, next week, we will be talking with Eric Smith, uh, Paul the Progressive. Uh, love the uh, love the, the next part of the title, The Compassionate Christian's Guide to Reclaiming the Apostle as an Ally. We're going to do some reclaiming next week. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, peace to you, Tija. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Friends, you can keep up to date on all of the One Question with Pastor Adam episodes uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you uh, listen to a podcast, um, platform where you can leave me a review. I would be so grateful for five-star review. Any uh, nice comment that you can leave would be awesome. If you think that this episode could be helpful for someone, uh, feel free to share it. Um, And uh, we will do it all again next week uh, as we talk about Paul the Progressive. So hope you all have a wonderful week. And uh, until next time, friends, God be with you.